You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So without any more delay, I want to invite you to join me in the 89th Psalm. That is, if you've got a Bible or if you've got a smartphone, I want to invite you to make your way to the Psalms in the middle of the Bible. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents, and you'll even see a a paperback Bible under the chair in front of you or the one you're sitting on. I would invite you to make your way there. We have good news that comes out of these pages. If this is the first time you've opened a Bible or the thousandth, and so we want to pick up kind of where we left off as we've been walking through this summer through the Psalms. That is the largest collection of Psalms and of songs, hymns, prayers, poems, right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. And we'll be in the 89th Psalm. It is the third longest Psalm. It's going to take me about seven and a half minutes to read it. And so I want to get right into it. What you'll find here is that in this particularly long Psalm, it will look like it's disjointed. As as I've shared with many of you, the Psalms are overwhelmed by what is known as a genre of lament. It is that so many of the Psalms are crying out to God in the midst of suffering, praying for deliverance. And this is hard to categorize. And what we find here is praise that leads to and ends in lament. So let's read it together. Don't be afraid if, a, if in the midst of this you kind of space out, if, you're, if your attention span kind of wears out. I, I share this with you regularly. My goal Uh, is to intentionally stretch your intention span for the reading and the listening to God's Word and to intentionally stretch your intention span for the teaching of God's Word. So if you find yourself drifting off, that's okay. When you hope you go someplace nice, right? But when you come back, I want to ask you to to pay careful attention to to the thing that maybe that, that draws you back to the text. There's probably something particular there that I want you to latch on to. So beginning in verse 1, of Psalm 89, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth, is also, or the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. 
You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. And his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now... You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and you have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. 
How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is God's word. I pray that it comes alive for us today as the people of God. Imagine that it was said of you that you were the greatest man or woman in the West. I don't mean the West in the western part of this continent. I mean the western hemisphere, the west, the cultural, societal. Imagine it was said to you that you were the greatest in the west. Imagine that it was said to you that there is no one like you on earth, that you are blameless and upright and you fear God and you do no evil. Now imagine that that was said of you by God. Imagine that God declared over your life that you were the greatest, that you are the most upright, that you are blameless, that there's no one like you on earth. How would that make you feel? Wouldn't you like that kind of adoration, that kind of praise, not just from the world, but from God, the creator of the world? And that sounds amazing. Certainly on such a person, the faithful love of God would rest. I want to share with you a passage of Scripture out of Job chapter 1. You see, this was said of a person. And the person of which this was said was a man named Job. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none Like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God loved Job. It would be even fair to say God admired Job. God thought highly of Job. There's no one like him. In that same few verses, we find that it says that he was the greatest of the East. The greatest of the East. Wouldn't you love to be thought of that way? I think we'd love that. I know I'd love that. People would gather around and speak of how great I am, how I don't do any evil. I walk in uprightness. They admire me. But here's the thing. We are prone to believe that to have such kind of greatness, to be thought of that highly, exempts us from sin, suffering, and disappointment. 
And what we find in this psalm, and even lived out in the example of Job, and later walked with the footsteps of Jesus, is that in a broken and fallen world marred by sin, no one escapes suffering. No one escapes disappointment. There's no one who doesn't have to battle temptation. There's none of us that don't have to fight against sin that besets us. And notice in this psalm, for the first 37 verses, there is overwhelming praise. Did you catch that? Beautiful and overwhelming praise about who God is and God's love. And it will never end and it's forever. And, and His faithfulness, His promise to be for us will never come to an end. And if it were you or me, that's how I would love for this psalm to end. The end of verse, uh, is it 30, 37? End. Selah, right? We, we don't even know what the word Selah mean. It might just, be, it might just mean like a comma, right? Um, it most likely some sort of musical direction. It may mean like a musical interlude or something. The musicians are meant to do something, right? In your head, think guitar solo, right? Or at least some sort of like musical transition. And in this moment, I would love for the psalm to end. Like the moon, your love will endure forever. It's going to be established forever. It's going to be a faithful witness in the skies. Selah, amen. Let's go home. But what follows for the latter fourth or third of this psalm, this poem, this reflection is deep and awful sorrow. And what we come to find out is that the first 37 verses of this psalm, this poem, it's most likely that it was a hymn or something that was chanted or recited as a congregation of people. The first 37 verses of praise to God is sung, as one commentarian puts it, through tears. The first 37 verses of praise to God is sung by people who are weeping, who ex have experienced what they think from the last verses, beginning in 30, verse 38 on, is the most tragic thing that could have happened. And so we don't know when this was written. It makes reference to a man by the name of Ethan, who was an Ezraite. But it seems to be talking about a series of events that happened much after, much longer, uh, later than the, than the Davidic rule. That is, the, that King David, the anointed you heard him mention, would have, uh, and his throne would have been destroyed. And so therefore, this psalm seems to be written during or about uh, maybe the betrayal of David's sons, maybe the, the, over, the overthrow from Absalom, Jeroboam. It may even have been written in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, a lament the end of the Davidic king or the, the Davidic throne. And they were singing these songs of praise through tears. And so this begs the question, how do we respond when we sense that God has abandoned us? When it seems like in disappointment, God has removed his presence from us. Now, as we walk through the Psalms, as I shared with you uh, before, and I'll continue to share with you, the, the Psalms are, in many ways, they're the, they're the language of prayer and song, and they're hymns. They're the most quoted of any of the books of the Old Testament in the New. 
And they give us what I would argue is, what I hope I kind of advocate for, we talked about this when we walked through the book of Lamentation last year, but they give us what I think is a biblical literacy. That is, it gives us the language of the Bible. John Calvin says that in many ways that the Psalms describe the anatomy of the Christian faith. There is no experience, there is no emotion that a Christian will experience that isn't expressed in some way, shape, or form in the Psalms. From the deepest high, the joy and hope and, and, and absolute happiness to the lowest of lows. In fact, the psalm that came before this, Psalm 88, was also a psalm of an Ezraite. And it might be one of the saddest and darkest psalms that you can imagine. And imagine one summer we're going to get there, right? We're going to be walking through that. But this is a unique psalm. It's hard to categorize. And yet it gives us the language of faith. It's hard to categorize because after all, is it, is it a psalm of praise? Or is it a psalm of lament? And here's, here's, here's the profound power of this psalm that is overwhelming. There's no way I'm going to be able to plumb the depths of it today. But I would ask the same question about your life. Is your life a, a comedy? Is it a romantic comedy with a happy ending? Or is it a tragedy? Is the, is the poem and the poetry and language of your life one of praise and hope? Or is it of sadness and lament? And here's the thing. In a broken, fallen world, marred by sin, it's hard to tell the difference. And I love the honesty of the Bible. It never sugarcoats it. It never, never paints a picture of life that is untrue or unrealistic. This is what life is, isn't it? On a good day, the, the, the number of verses of praise outnumber, right, the, 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 the verses of lament. But, but on other days, they overwhelm one another, don't they? And so the Psalms give us the language of faith. Think of it this way, and when I say biblical literacy, we, we, we want to use the language of the Psalms to talk about God. And if you were to ask the question, how do we talk about God? How do we talk to God? How do we talk about God? The Psalms are the answer, right? You want to learn the language of faith. The Psalms do that, right? In the same way that you would, you would point people to, to maybe grow in literacy in other topics, right? Like how do you, you know, how does maybe, maybe if you're a spouse, a married person, or you aspire to this, right? How do you, how do you communicate? Uh, how, do you, how do you talk to and about a loved one, right? You got the Song of Solomon, right? Teaches you the literacy of love, doesn't it? My wife loves that. I'm like, Girl, your hair, it's like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. Mm. And she's like, ooh, boy. Right, yeah. Your teeth are like sheep come up from the wash, each with their twin. Not a single one missed. Like, you could, yeah. The language of love. You might have to maybe add some to it. If you want to know how to talk to someone you love, you need to learn the literacy. You need to read some, you need to read some Shakespeare, right? Maybe listen to some Luther Vandross, right? And most, for those of you who are mature and sanctified and in covenant marriage with one another, you get the idea. And so the psalmists tell us how we talk to and about God. And so I want to point out a handful of things here. I've outlined six, I think. If we have time, we'll go through all of them. But I've outlined six of these things that I think there's more than I could get to, but at least six things 
that help you and I talk about who God is and what God is like. And they give us the language to understand and cope with life when, it, when it's hard to tell if, it, if it's, a, it's a time of joy or lament. So I'll give you six. We'll kind of walk through this text, at least six. I think there are more, but six that I think are pertinent to us. The first one is that we sing and declare the greatness of God. The very first verse, it just starts and just says, look, I'm going to sing of the steadfast love. Now, this will be great for you if you were with us when we walked through Judges and then through the book of Ruth. That word hesed, that, that covenantal steadfast love, uh, is meant to be the root of the book of Ruth, right? The, the, the theme of faithful love is throughout the book of Ruth, right? Whether it's, when you say Naomi displaying it, Ruth displaying it, Boaz displaying it, it's, it's meant to be this like love story that displays what God's faithful covenant love looks like. And it says, we are going to sing, I, I will sing of it forever, forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And so there's two parts. We were going, we're going to be singing and declaring forever. Forever. And so one of the first things, if we think about how do we talk, what does it mean to be a Christian facing joy or sorrow? It means we sing and proclaim. We sing and proclaim. We sing and we declare the greatness of God. And here's what I want to tell you. Singing might be one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous thing that we do as a church. It might be, at least in light of that, the most terrifying thing that we do as a church. And there's at least two reasons why there's danger in singing. And every single Sunday, we gather together and we sing. And we do something, and there's two dangers of this, right? At least two. One, we're tempted in our very performative culture to think that singing is about us and our singing ability. And that's dangerous. If we're going to sing, and it's really about us, then we'll miss the language of the psalmist. No, we're going to sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. And I share this regularly. We try to be equal opportunity offenders when we sing uh, to and for and about Jesus, right? And if someone, you're like, hey, I don't like the songs we sing. Ah, that's too bad. None of them were written for you, okay? They were all for the glory and the renown of the steadfast love of God demonstrated for us in Jesus, and we will be singing them forever. Not, not one single song will we be singing forever will have your name in it. You might, with me, get a footnote to the steadfast love of the Lord as it's shown to us and it falls on us, but not a single one of them will be dedicated to you or me. And we're going to do that. You can look in the book of Revelation to prove it forever. We'll never stop. And so it's dangerous because you might be tempted to thinking that like singing is about our ability or the people who sing are the people who sing well. Look, of course there's some people more or less talented, and they serve us well when they help us to sing on pitch or on time, right? There's, of course that happens. But here's the, at no particular point does the psalmist say that our song and our singing has anything to do with that. It has to do with the theme that shows up over and over and over and over and over again, the steadfast love and its foreverness. And so it's dangerous when we sing, because you might come in here and for just a minute you might think that this is about you or someone singing. Here's a second reason I think it's dangerous. You can't easily retract what you sing. Like what you sing is, it's, it's virtually impossible to like take back. Let me see if I can illustrate what I mean. Singing like comes from somewhere deep. If you think about it this way, it is completely risk-free 
to mumble or mutter or whisper, right? What'd you say? Nothing, right? Risk-free. And even then, it's, it's pretty safe to talk about Jesus. But we saw this last week as Joe led us through a psalm that said we shout about the work of God in Christ, right? Now it gets trickier, right? It's harder to take that back. Right? If you just mutter something or you say something and you shouldn't have said it, you can be like, you know, Your Honor, I, I didn't mean it. Like, oh, okay, you're right. But if you shout it, whew, there's more of yourself involved in it. Now imagine that you sing it. Right? Like, I didn't mean it. The judge would be like, well, I see here you wrote a song about it. It's, it's hard to retract, isn't it? What you sing is somehow connected to your sense of self we see the, the language of the heart and the soul throughout the, the psalms and the connection to our singing and praise as a direct overflow of what our soul and our heart contains. And it's, it's, it's terrifying. Because here's the thing, what you sing is, you can't take it back. It's powerful. Singing has power that it's hard to comprehend. And there's a few examples, right? I, I, I think as you reflect on places where singing has power, right? Isn't that why, isn't that why like the, I don't know, the, the sting of playground songs cuts so deep, right? Man, 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 sitting in a tree, can't. There's like, I mean, if you just said that, it wouldn't bother you. But there's something, when someone sings and chants that, you're like, ah. It cuts deep. Because what we sing is powerful, this is the miracle of being human that God has endowed to us. The image of the creator is seen in his creative nature in the way that we create and experience art. Singing is that very thing. Isn't that why it's such an issue on who does and does not stand or sing to the national anthem? We take it seriously. It's powerful. It's more than you think. And you can't take it back. And so the language of faith is the language of singing. And make no mistake about it, it's dangerous, it's terrifying. You'll either fall into the category, you'll think it's about performing or impressing, and you'll miss the praise and the worship of God altogether. Or in fear, you won't make a sound. And so I just want to make a couple of quick observations about that. I want to speak directly to the men in the room. This applies to women, I think, but I just want to share with you something I've seen as a pastor over the last decade. On multiple occasions, I have had women come to me and marvel at something. And you know who I'm trying to look at? I won't make eye contact to anyone in this room. But men, you need to know this. They've come and marveled at something that happens on the first time they see their husband sing to Jesus. And they marvel at it. Now, I mention that because I don't, for whatever reason, I mean, again, we're not very good at talking about gender in the world right now. Just show me grace. But women, you tend to be better at this. You just tend to be better. Maybe it's, maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's in our design. But if I said, hey, ladies, let's sing, it'd be louder than if I said, hey, men, let's sing. And, and there, it, there's a lot going on there, but I'll just say this. Men, you don't know this. But there is no time that your wife admires you and thinks more highly of you than when you were singing to Jesus or praying to Jesus and for her. 
And I, I want this is this is the key that will unlock intimacy and trust. And I, I've heard this over and over and over. Now again, you could say the same thing about women. It, there's there's parts of this would would go both ways. But I would just say this: like men, we we struggle at this, and yet the language of faith is that we're not ever going to stop doing this. And if you're like, well, men don't sing. Yeah, you're right, except for Elvis and oh, I don't know, every single boy band that's existed. Don't tell me men getting together singing isn't awesome. You're the only insecure idiot who thinks that. From the Temptations to the, to the, to the Beach Boys to Boys to Men to, good grief, sync Backstreet Boys, and now the Jonas Brothers. Like there's, You could go on forever about dudes getting together singing. And don't tell me it's not powerful. And friend... That's what the life of faith includes. And so in a moment here, we're going to wrap up and we're going to stand together and do something that's going to be terrifying. I know. It's going to, it's going to scare you to death. Either because you think it's about you or because you, you know that you can't take it back. And we're going to sing. And there is no more powerful thing, more, more like death-defying thing that you can do than to sing at the top of your lungs for the glory of Jesus. So what if you can't hit the tune? That makes it all the more amazing. Well, like, do you hear that guy? Can't even, he didn't even know what note he's singing, but man, he loves so Jesus, loved Jesus so much he don't even care. And the person who cares about that, they don't get it either, right? They, they fall in the first temptation. Think of it this way. Singing is the one thing that the church does that won't expire. One day in heaven, we won't share the gospel anymore with people who don't believe. We won't be able to like welcome the widow or the orphan. We won't be able to like care for the poor. We won't be able to baptize. All of the awesome things that we get to do, I won't pre- I'll be out of a job. There'll be nothing for me to tell you about. It'll just be like, I'll just be like, I'll just be bowing. And my job at that point would be like, what are you bowing for? Oh, oh, like that's it. That's, but Revelation tells us multiple times that the thing that we won't stop doing is what? Singing. And so here's what I'll tell you. I know it's crazy, I know it's terrifying, but I'm here to compel you to behold a God that is worthy of singing. You haven't seen, if you don't, and if you're like, I don't sing, well, that just means you haven't seen anything worthy of song. And I want to introduce you to the God of the Bible who keeps his promise, holds his steadfast love for his people in Christ forever. Behold Jesus today and, as one of the most profound and courageous acts of faith, sing. Second thing I want you to see here is that praise happens in the context of lament. Praise happens in the context of lament. Remember what I told you? It's hard to define whether this is a song, uh, this psalm is ultimately a praise or a lament because they just like are smashed together. And that's, I would argue, is what, what life is like. And so while we sing and declare the greatness of God, one of the second things we see is that God deserves constant praise because of his character, not because of our circumstances. And so when you see those two things smashed together, 37 verses of praise and then a dozen or more verses of lament, those aren't in contradiction. They go together. In fact, some of the most profound praise happens in the midst of suffering. Remember our guy Job? Remember that? The very end of that first chapter? This is what we find out happens in verse 20. Then Job arose and he tore his, clothes, or tore his robe and shaved his head. I mean, you think you've been sad before. Have you ever done that? He just lost his family and everything that he valued in the world. And he fell on the ground. And what did he do? He worshipped. 
And he said, and again, you can, can you tell? Can you tell if he's lamenting or praising? You can't, right? And he said, naked I came, in from, my, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. I'm reading King James out of my head. But then what does he say? But blessed be the name of the Lord. He praises God, even in the midst of it. And all that Job did, he didn't sin or charge God with wrong. And so it is, as a mentor of mine put it, and I heard one of the commentarians as we even, I was reading through this, there's never a wrong time to praise God. There's never a moment where the, in the verse 37 verses, where the promise-keeping, loving, gracious, merciful, and holy God deserves our praise. There's never a time where this perfect God doesn't deserve our praise. And that's because the praise and the glory that belongs to him isn't in your circumstances or mine. It is sometimes, though, isn't it? I know that's the case for some of you right now. <laughs> Someone up here telling you, you praise God, and you're sitting like, and you're in the last, right, verse 38 on, and you're like, I don't think you know my life. But I want to compel you, language of faith, is that, and that the psalmist teaches us here is that God will deserve our praise. Sing forever, right? If you don't want to sing, that's fine. The New Testament tells that there's rocks waiting to take your place. That God will summon to life and will sing if you choose not to. Because God deserves the praise constantly because he is good and he is holy. Not because our circumstances deserve it. And even if you sing about your circumstances, notice the psalmist welcomes you. That's called lament. It is right and good to call out to God. And all I would add to that is, in sorrow, do you actually call out to God or do you call out to other things first, right? Do you look for some sort of substance to ease or numb the pain? Do you look for a friend to, so that you can vent it? Or do you, like the psalmist, recognize there's only one person, there's only one person who can help me in the depths of my sorrow, and I'm going to take it to him? Beginning in verse 38, you're the one who can fix this. You're the one. We, we've turned, right? It, it implies that, that the promise for David and his sons and daughters, if they turn against them, they'll experience wrath. But he's saying, look, you said you wouldn't break your promise. And, and, and the backdrop of this psalm is 2 Samuel chapter 7. I encourage you to read that. It's the, the promise that Nathan the prophet gives to David these very words, that, that God will bless him and his throne will be inhabited by his offspring forever. Thus, he deserves praise. But this means something profound, that the promises of God empower us to endure suffering and confusion with hope, not avoid them. The hard truth of this psalm is that we are invited to praise in the midst of sorrow, lament to God in the midst of suffering, when we're completely confused about why things are. Like, right, God, how long are you going to do this? You hear that language in the last part of it. But notice something that's important for us to see here is that the language of faith isn't that we avoid suffering and confusion. It's that the promises of God and our trust in them allow us to have hope. Empower us, embody, empower us to embody hope in the midst of suffering. And it can often be a temptation, I know for me and I know for you, it's instead of 
that we would ask God that he would give us hope in the midst of sorrow, my prayer is usually like, God, if you would just, how about no sorrow? Lord, that's fine. Can I just, I'll be over here. Thirdly, I want to nail down on something here that's powerful. It's a theme that's throughout the Bible, but in the picture of deliverance of God's people from Exodus, you heard that word that, that they had crushed Rahab. That's a mythical term. Um, that's not Rahab, the, the lovely woman that God used to deliver the spies and the conquest of Cana. Rahab is a, is a, is a mythical term of, a, of, a, of like a, a sea creature, a mythical creature. But but the Israelites would have used that, that mythical term, Rahab, to talk about Egypt, the ones who had enslaved them, and yet God leveled them and set all the captives free. And so in this picture of God's deliverance from oppression, he says something powerful. He says that righteousness, in verse 14, and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Now, I just again, same way. Um, I told you right now we're not really good as a culture and a society talking about gender, not you can't really, what is it, like uh, Mark Twain says that you, uh, right, you argue because you cannot debate, right? So, you know, discuss things well, we just get fired up. And maybe you're not ready to hear it, but I hope you show me some grace. We're also not very good right now at talking about justice. But the psalmist says the language of faith is both of the righteousness of God and the justice of God that serve as the very foundation for his sovereign reign, his throne. Righteousness and justice. Now, the psalmist uses them synonymously. They're like the same thing. And for Christians, that, that shouldn't surprise you, right? We talk about in the New Testament the, the synonyms that are repentance and faith, right? To repent is to turn from, and, and faith is to turn toward. So like, you, you know this already. Like the, they're, the, they're different sides of the same coin. And uh, I remember like uh, we were preaching through the Gospel of John a couple years ago, and someone who was visiting came and just very belligerently at the end of a sermon said, you didn't mention repentance. And my first response, well, the Gospel of John doesn't use that word. I realized that was mouthy now, right? I realized it was not helpful. But my, my hope is like that the Gospel of John uses the word faith, right? Belief, faith. God so loved the world, gave his son, that all who what? Believe. And it's the same coin, just a different side. In the same way that it's impossible for you, it's impossible for me to repent or to turn away from you without turning toward the screen. In the same way that it's impossible for me to turn toward the screen without turning away from you. And so repentance and faith are, the, are these synonymous terms the New Testament uses for turning away from sin but turning to Jesus. And so the same thing is found in the Old Testament, this concept of righteousness, doing right and what is virtuous and good, and yet also judgment and justice upon that which is not good. And they're used synonymously. They're, they're basically the same thing. But we can, I believe, like get wrapped up in one. But I want you to see that it's resonant with the heart of God to pursue righteousness, virtue, and good, as well as it is to pronounce and advocate judgment on that which is not good. And here's the thing. You'll probably be fixated with one or the other. And it's possible, could be wrong, that your fixation on one or the other falls along a partisan political party line, or a partisan political party line.
Now, my job, again, isn't to give you all the answers. Sometimes my job is to comfort those who have been unnecessarily afflicted. But sometimes my job is to afflict those of you who are unnecessarily comfortable. You see, justice without righteousness is just vengeance. But righteousness without justice is apathy. And I want you to know that the foundation of the holiness of God includes both. That God is pure and perfect, but that means that that which is not pure and perfect cannot stand in God's presence. And the language of faith is to speak and advocate for that which is virtuous, but also speak and advocate for that which is not. And here's the thing. If you have been... If you've got a nice, comfortable life and no one's ever cheated you or mistreated you, you probably really like righteousness, right? And most of the American church has gotten away with that. And the message is, hey, do right and act right. This week, do right, act right. Cool, thanks. Right, out. And that works until someone else doesn't do or act right. And so here's what I want you to see. It is resonant with the heart of God and the foundation of his throne for us to know and understand the language of what is right, righteous and virtuous, and the language of judgment and justice against that which is sin and causes harm. Let me stab at two of them. You could pick a lot right now. We have a lot. We have a lot of sensitive subjects right now. But let me pick the worst, okay? Let me make you as uncomfortable and angry as possible. When we see injustice... We see unfair treatment for people who cannot defend themselves. Harm that's caused to people that is unfair. You and I, because we have encountered the perfection and righteousness of God, are to be the loudest. And yes, like John the Baptist, you might get beheaded for it. But good thing you're pointing to the one that is to come. So, if you use things wrongly, like the rights of women and the freedoms of women as a smokescreen to cover up injustice against unborn babies that never got to see the light of day, then you are embracing a perspective that is dissonant with the heart of God and the foundation of his sovereign reign. Hang on. If you like this one, you won't like this one. It's just... If you use misnomers and boogeymen like critical race theory or cultural Marxism as a smokescreen to cover up the history of injustice against African Americans in our country's past, then you also are embracing a perspective that is dissonant with the heart of God and the foundation of his throne. Do you see how either perspective won't give you the hope that only God can? And so... This morning, you likely will have to repent of either apathy because you have wanted righteousness without justice. And there's grace for you. Hey, I mean, I've just been apathetic about people who've suffered, right? Or maybe you'll have to repent of vengeance. Let me be clear. You and I could liberate every captive. We could deliver every, we could deliver every unborn person. <laughs> We could adopt every orphan. We could take in every widow. We could make the poor rich. We could give every refugee a home. We could right every single wrong, and every single one of those people will still be sinners and needing of hearing the good news and repenting. 
But that is not a smokescreen for what Jesus describes as woeful. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but what? You neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Right? Do you hear that? Do you hear that righteousness and justice? Right? So you're like, well, should I? Can you hear the, can you hear the, like, the Pharisees? Well, should I have not tithed? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I didn't say that. That's a red herring. You're freaking out, okay? Come back. You shouldn't have neglected something to do this. You shouldn't have neglected justice to pursue righteousness. In the same way that you shouldn't neglect righteousness to pursue justice. And notice, those are the foundations. Synonymous foundations, even though they look different throughout the Old Testament and New. Of the very reign and heart of God. Now I know this is a complex issue. It's complicated. A lot of moving parts. But here's what I would say. If you use that complexity as an excuse to sidestep justice, what Jesus says here, then he has another parable for you. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And good and righteous folks saw a man in need and walked right around. And that, my friend, is dissonant with the heart and throne of God. And the language to talk about God and talk to God, the psalmist gives us here, is the language of both righteousness and justice. And I know it's complex. I know it's going to be difficult. I know, but here's the thing. We're bad at it, and the psalmist is helping us. I think the Bible gives us language for you and I to navigate issues of righteousness and justice right now and to navigate them well. Will you be maligned for it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is it worth it? Because it testifies to the perfection of God and his righteousness and justice? Oh, yeah. And when we do that, we live a life that demands a gospel explanation. People are like, why do you do that? Like, why are you not vengeful to the, to the people who have sinned against you? And you'll say, because that's not how God treated me. And you'll say, why are you helping the people that, that are unrighteous, right? Or people that, you know, in your mind, like, they don't deserve help, right? And you'll say, because that's how God treated me. That's the very foundation of his throne. Let me skim through the last couple we also find hope in the promises and election of God. Crash course on what we would call Reformed theology. Did you notice the language of chosenness of David? Just really quickly here, I, I, I don't want it, because it was there more than once, I don't want it to confuse you. If you hear that and that causes you to want to like pick an ideological or philosophical fight, you missed it, okay? The choosing of God, right? This is the debate. Is it that do we choose God to be saved or does God choose us? And this psalmist gives us the language of what it means to be comforted by the fact that God chooses us. Here's why that's important. It's not, it's not to have a philosophical debate. It's to be comforted. And Jesus himself did this. In John chapter 15, this is what Jesus says you did, to his disciples. His last discourse to them before he's, turned, he's handed over to die. He says, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that 
Whatever you ask the Father in my name, it, he may give it to you. Why is that important? <laughs> because everybody he was talking to was about to completely fail Jesus over the next 24 hours. <laughs> they were about to, every one of them, not just Judas, all of them were about to deny him, scatter and hide. And what did Jesus want them to know? Hey, when you fail, not if, like when you let me down, not, just remember, this has nothing to do with that. Just remember, when you ch- choose not me, right, over the next 24 hours, remember that we're not friends. That's what he says a few, few verses before. Remember that we're not friends because of that. Be comforted because I chose you. Now, we don't use that. Remember, that's not a, like a, you know, stay in your cage for some of you. You'll know what that means. Like, don't, this isn't meant to win an argument at a cocktail party. The election of God to fulfill his promises for us are meant to be deep comfort for when you and I feel abandoned and we know we've failed and we can say, thank God. Thank God that he chose to save me. It's the words of comfort. The last thing is this. Well, I skipped the fifth one, but don't worry about it. Probably wasn't that good a point anyway. (laughs) What seems like the demise of God's promise is actually the means of its fulfillment. These people had lost the Davidic throne. And this is amazing because the Davidic dynasty is estimated to have lived four, it lasted four centuries. That's up there and above every dynasty you you can study in all of history. It's no joke. But notice that wasn't what God promised them. God didn't promise his people 400 years. God didn't promise his people a throne that outlasted all the other earthly thrones. God promised his people a throne that lasted forever. And it seemed to those people like the end of that It seemed like the most hopeless moment because it seemed like God had abandoned them. And they, they say that in the last several verses. And yet, that was the means by which the greater David would come and take the eternal throne. And in this way, this is what God does. God flips the script And what seemed to be the failure of God's promise for them was actually the means of its fulfillment. Look, we did this just a minute ago. (laughs) Someone stood up here, and for a moment, we did a fast-forward of all of their whole existence, right? And I held them underwater, right? And most We don't like to think about this, but they held their breath. For a moment, they stopped breathing. This is not like, this is not some j- just kind of like imagery. It's real. It is a real participation. In a moment, they face death. And had I chosen to hold them down, they would have faced it more closely, right? I'm, somebody would have jumped up, right? I want this to kind of scare you. Because what seems like, what would seem like the loss of life is actually the means by which God grants it. And here's the hard part. 
you are all, did you hear what's going to happen? Who, he asked this rhetorical question. Who can deliver us from death? Did you catch that? Who will deliver us from, from Sheol? Here's the hard part. Every single one of you, unless Jesus comes back and takes you, you're going to die. And almost every one of you, it's going to happen before any of us want it to happen. I mean, that's not, as if we wanted it, never mind. That's not helpful. It, it's going to happen before we're ready. And in that moment, it will seem like God's promise to give you abundant life will have failed. But here's the thing. Everybody wants to know what they will be said about them at their funeral. Well, if I get asked by your family to do it, here's what I get to say. What seems like the end, what seems like God missing out on fulfilling his promise to give us life more abundantly is actually the means by which he grants it. It is the means by which he grants the greater promise to, through the greater David who has overcome the grave. And I get to say to us in mourning, right? Like, this is terrible. Why, God, why would you let this happen? And yet I get to say, in spite of that, in the very midst of that, the thing that seems like the end, in that moment as we're weeping over you, just like the apostles were weeping over the death and burial of their friend Jesus. It seemed like all hope was lost. It seemed like that which God was going to grant them was over. And yet what seemed like the end was only the beginning. And for you and for me, the praise and the lament that we get to experience, the language that we are invited to use is the language that God uses these things. It's one of the greatest sermons of all time. It's an expository sermon preached by Jesus. It happens multiple times in Luke chapter 24, but he says to the people walking with him who were sorrowful and weeping, what does he say? Foolish ones. <laughs> Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Friend, the thing in your life and mine that seems like the end of God's promises might actually be the means by which he's fulfilling them. The death that seems to be overtaking your life and mine in failure to sin, in loss and disappointment, in the crumbling of our idols and the things we've hoped in, that, that death Seems like God has abandoned you, but that death, friends, is giving way to a resurrection. And apart from Christ, it would make no sense to sing. Apart from Christ, it would make no sense to be a member of a church. Apart, no, apart from Christ, it would make no sense to let somebody dunk you underwater. But friends, because of Christ, the thing that seems absurd is the thing for which we are grateful and the thing about which we will sing forever and ever and ever and ever. And the closing of this third book of the psalm says this, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness towards us in Christ. God, thank you for the words of the psalmist here. Thank you that they are not trite. They don't minimize our suffering or difficulty, but instead they are filled with hope. That suffering does not get the last word, even death. The depths of Sheol do not get the last word. And that you and your power and sovereignty have chosen to 
redeem us for your own, and you will not be thwarted even by the things that seem like they have victory. God, I pray for comfort for those of us in the room that need it. I I pray then also for affliction for those in the room that need it. Would you allow us to behold you such that we would sing of you? Give us the faith and courage to do so. For those in the room that just simply feel death and it just their life even would say it smells like death, would now you give them the encouragement of the psalmist? He will not remove his steadfast love for us. Would you overwhelm those in sorrow and grief this morning with a sense of your steadfast love? You will not forsake your promise. God, thank you that these promises for us are all fulfilled and as the Corinthian church received, they all find their yes in Jesus. Allow that to now give us faith. Maybe for some in the room that have never heard this good news, might today be the day they respond in faith. Might today be the day they, uh, they declare in faith that they will trust no longer in other things, but they will trust in the fulfilled promise for them in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's to become a member of a church apart from Christ would make no sense. To be baptized apart from Christ would make no sense. To advocate for those virtues of righteousness and justice that apart from Christ would make no sense. Whatever the case may be, Lord, fulfill these promises now in our, in our watching. Allow us to celebrate in song and repentance and grace all these gifts you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.